We're continuing our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this morning, we arrive together at chapter 4. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles to the passage that Tom read for us. It begins, more or less, with the word, therefore. It's a word that tells us we've come to a checkpoint. Um, If you're a hiker or a biker, you might like to think of it like a scenic overlook, where we can look back and see where we've been before looking forward to see now what's in front of us. And where exactly have we been? Where has Paul taken us in these past several weeks? Well, for three chapters now, Paul has been unfolding for us the eternal plan of God being worked out in history. How he defeated the powers of evil in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How he raised us from spiritual death and restored our relationship with him. And how he reconciled us to each other and brought us together into a new community called the church. This community, this community, Paul tells us, is God's masterpiece, his finest accomplishment even finer than mornings like this in the Shenandoah Valley, is the church. But it comes with a calling. It's the calling that Paul talks about in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, beg you, plead with you, encourage you to walk in a manner Worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul isn't referring here to the specific calling or vocation that each one of us has. Matt to be a lawyer, Jeannie to be a teacher, Sean to be a counselor. No, he's referring to the general calling that God has given to all of us collectively. It's the calling that Paul mentioned for us back in chapter 3 Verse 10, it's to reveal what Paul calls the manifold, multicolored wisdom of God to the defeated powers of evil. It's to radiate God's glory before a cosmic audience. But of course, there's also a more immediate audience, isn't there? It's the audience of our city. And our communities and our neighborhoods. What should they see when they look at us? They should see hope. They should see the fruit of the gospel, a people united to one another in love. And isn't that the community we all want? Isn't that why? We associate ourselves with different groups, whether it be a political party or an athletic team or the Boy Scouts. Isn't this even why young people 
join gangs and militant groups. It's to be united to a community, to have a people that accepts us and loves us. Our calling is to put God's victorious love that we've seen in Ephesians on display for all creation to see. It's an incredible privilege, and it comes with a high responsibility. It requires all of our allegiance. How do we pull it off? The world is watching us. The demonic realm is watching us, waiting for us to slip up. How can we serve as a witness to them? Paul shows us three ways. And that's what I'd like for us to see this morning from our passage. Three ways that we, as the church, can walk worthy of God's calling on our lives. And the first way is by treating each other like family. Paul wrote lots of letters to different churches. When he wrote to the Corinthian church and corrected them for their wild sexuality, um, he introduced this theme. Become what you are. Become what you are. So when he wrote to the Corinthians and corrected them, he said, um, God has made you holy. Now act like it. When he wrote to the Galatians, who were in spiritual bondage and kept resorting to that, his message was, God has set you free. Now act like it. Now Paul's writing to the Ephesians, and by the power of the Holy Spirit to us, and he's telling us, God has made you a family. Now act like it. Did you notice that long string of ones in verses 4 to 6? There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is orienting us around the family dinner table. God is our father. Christ is our older brother. And we all share and bear the family resemblance and name of the Holy Spirit. No matter where we're from, no matter our skin color, our marital status, our class, we all share the same essentials. We're all family, united together in allegiance to Jesus. But as in all families, conflict is inevitable. This is Family Dynamics 101. People get annoyed. People get their feelings hurt. People take advantage of each other. People feel left out, unheard, unwanted. I'm trying right now to talk my extended family into going on a weekend getaway. And it's risky business. At any moment, they could turn on me, right? Just realized this is being recorded. <laughs> we can deal with that. If you've ever pulled this off with your family, I hope you'll come and see me after the service and give me some pointers. I think it'd be fun. It's tough getting everyone together. Everyone's afraid of conflict, right? Afraid of drama, afraid of tension. 
And yet that's the beauty of family. In reality, no matter what happens during the day, a true family will gather around the dinner table at night. Look at the way Paul tells us to treat each other in verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Some of these traits that Paul mentions here were despised in the ancient world. The Greeks, for example, only spoke of humility when talking about the submissiveness and the degradedness of a slave. And it's the same with gentleness. Power was reserved for people who stood up for themselves. But God's family, Paul tells us, is different. It dances to a different beat. It cherishes unity and togetherness, community, above being powerful, above being respected, above being seen as right. And this priority changes everything. Conflict is inevitable. But when it happens, we deal with it as people who ultimately will gather around the same dinner table. I wonder, do you have a disagreement right now with someone in this body? What would it look like for you to view that person as a brother or sister in Christ, to approach that argument, that conversation, acknowledging that you're going to spend eternity together. Isn't that what makes our community different from anything the world can offer? There's security in family. There's freedom to be wrong and to be weak without being kicked out of the group. Paul is urging us to keep our unity central and to stand guard over that unity like a troop of soldiers might guard a city or a treasury. There are all sorts of things that can attack and spoil our unity, but all these things must be resisted for the sake of our calling. So that's the first thing Paul tells us. If we want to walk worthy of our calling, we have to preserve our unity. And by the way, this is a very difficult thing to say in the 21st century. We've grown accustomed to so many divisions within the worldwide church. Eastern, Western, Catholic, Protestant. Not to mention the thousands of denominations that have sprung up over the past 500 years. And we need to admit that this is wrong. It's not worthy of our calling. How can we make it right? We can begin by treating each other in this building and spreading to all the Christians in Harrisonburg like family, like brothers and sisters, like people who will recognize each other and count on seeing each other in eternity and worshiping together. So that's the first way. But now Paul shows us a second way, 
a second way to live up to our calling. Not only are we to treat each other like family and preserve our unity, but we should also see each other as gifts. There's a deep unity in our life together, but there's also a very rich diversity. Notice how Paul shifts his language from verse 6 to verse 7. One God and Father of all, who was over all and through all and in all. And then in verse 7, but grace was given to each, all to each, unity to diversity. Paul's about to give a list of some of the spiritual gifts that Jesus has given to his church. That's what he means by the word grace. He means something like a gift, a role, a special God-given talent or ability. But before he does that, he slips in to this almost poetic and reflective mode. Did you catch that? He quotes this psalm that we read portions of this morning. And what he's doing is he's explaining our diversity in light of the great story of what Jesus has achieved. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What in the world is Paul talking about? It sounds strange to our modern ears. But to Paul's ancient readers who were steeped in the epics and poems and stories of the past, it made perfect sense. Paul is interpreting the whole of Psalm 68 through the lens of this ancient cultural backstory that we can call the tale of the victorious conqueror. The tale of the victorious conqueror. It's the thing that people are making movies out of today. Now, we'll leave a sermon on Psalm 68 for another time, but here's just a quick synopsis uh, of, of that psalm for our purposes this morning. All right? The Lord came down from heaven, down into the underworld, where he did battle with the forces of evil and emerged victorious, saving his people from enslavement and oppression. Then he marched forth like a warrior in triumphal procession, carrying the spoils of victory and leading a host of captives in his train. He ascended to his temple where he took his rightful throne as king of the nations. And there as high king, he rules the nations with justice and mercy. And everyone the Lord has rescued prospers in this kingdom. So I imagine all of us have heard the saying, to the victor belongs the spoils. If you've worked in politics, um, it won't surprise you that that actually came first from a loudmouthed U.S. senator. Um, but it sums up nicely what this psalm and this tale is all about. Whoever wins the battle gets the treasure. And here's the catch. Whoever's on the winning side gets a share. Paul wants us to understand that when Jesus did battle, we've been talking about this, right? With the forces of evil and emerged victorious. 
He gave us the spoils of victory. He gave us these special gifts to be shared with the church. So here Paul mentions only the gifts of leadership. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. But elsewhere in the New Testament, he gives longer lists, much longer lists. Lists in which you might find your own gift and see yourself like in a mirror. Hospitality, wisdom, knowledge, mercy toward the poor. Jesus' gifts are people. And he sends these gifts to Christian congregations all over the world. Who has Jesus sent to you as a gift? You know, when Mary Elizabeth and I moved to Harrisonburg, we were very worried about what was going to happen, like who was going to watch our kids. And Jesus sent us Karen, who's holding one of my kids right now. And then Jesus sent us Mariah. They all seem to be leaving us. Right now, we're worried about what's going to happen, you know, who's going to watch our kids. But Jesus has provided for us every single time. Who has Jesus sent to you as a gift to provide for you and help you to trust him? If you can't think of anybody, just look around you. All of these people are gifts. You're not here by accident. Jesus has you right where he wants you. He doesn't make mistakes. And he's going to use these ordinary people with extraordinary looks to form you to form you into the person he wants you to be. I think it's so easy in the church, I'm finding this, sorry, to depersonalize others, to see people as numbers or roles to play or slots to fill. In your small group, you might be tempted to see people not as who they are, but as the baked beans and the wine and the plates But God wants us to look beyond just the roles that people play. He wants us to see each man, woman, boy, girl in this room as intensely unique and as a window into the love and glory of God. I wonder, do we see each other like that as gifts? It's what we are. It's who Jesus has called us to be gifts to each other. Let's start looking at each other through that lens. Now, there's a final and very important way that Paul wants us to embody our calling, not only by treating each other like family, not just by seeing each other as gifts, but also, finally, by helping each other reach maturity. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love. And by the way, there's no verb here for speaking. It's actually the word truthing, and that just doesn't roll off the tongue. But Paul's calling us to use all of our gifts, not just the the teaching ones, the speaking ones, but the acting ones to embody God's gospel and work for us. So rather, truthing and love, 
We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul envisages this body, sees this body as growing up into Christ, who is the head. This seems an odd way to put it, um, since a human body doesn't grow into a head, although my massive-headed children might serve as an exception to that, but gets its life and direction from its head. So what Paul is doing here is referring to the way the body takes orders from the head and must be brought into line with what the head intends. You and I have been brought into this new community, this new family, and at the head of the table sits Christ on his throne. And our calling is first and foremost to bring our own lives under his authority. But at a very close second, it's to help each other bring our lives under his authority in deeper and deeper allegiance to him. I heard a story one time of a pastor um, counseling a man who was wanting to leave the church. The church is just so immature, he said. I want to read hard books and go on long mission trips and have these intense, transparent relationships, vulnerable relationships with others. None of these people seem to want to do that like I do. And, you know, the pastor said, I really do admire your zeal and your desire to go deep into the things of God. And I really wish all the people in our church would do that. But if you leave, how's that going to happen? And the man said, I have to leave. I just have to leave. Everybody here is slowing me down. And to which the pastor responded, yes, that might be so. But if you stay, don't you suppose that you actually might be able to speed them up? Sometimes we have the attitude of that man. We think maturity can be microwaved. That's why we get patient, impatient with others. Right? That we can shortcut spiritual maturity. But in reality... Maturity is a complex process. It's a long obedience, it's been said, right, in the same direction. And if we're ever going to reach that maturity, we need each other. We need the gifts and resources and relationships of everyone here. Only then will we grow up into Christ, who is our head. We've all heard of the person who thinks that he's God's gift to the church, uh, that the church is nothing without him or her, and of course that's not entirely true, but we do need to see each other and see ourselves as valuable to the life of this community. We have a calling to live out. God has called us to radiate his glory before a cosmic audience, to announce to the world through our community, through our friendships, through our life together, that the battle with evil has been won, that Christ is the victor. 
and that everything will soon be made right. That's our witness. But if we're going to give people a clear picture of that reality, we've got to maintain our unity, our togetherness above all. We have to treat each other like family. We have to see each other as gifts, gifts from the risen Christ to us. And we have to use our gifts, every one of us, to help each other reach the full maturity that our Lord wants for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.